able to jot a couple of those things down so you can follow. Um, this morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 14. So if you have your Bible with you, I will have nobody uh, plugging away at those uh, verses this morning. So uh, if you would follow along in your Bible, that would uh, be helpful. Um, so here we are on this missionary journey of Paul through the area of what is now um, Turkey. Um, Southern Galatia is where the main part of this ministry uh, comes to. And um, the rest of this chapter kind of talks about that uh, missionary journey, um, the opposition that, that comes against them, and then him getting back to Antioch, Syria, where they began. And he gives a report back to the church of all that happened in the Gentiles' um, salvation. So let's pray one more time and we will hear from the word of God. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray again this morning, remove distractions from each of us. Uh, remove the distractions in my own heart and my own mind. And may your Holy Spirit <coughs> fill us up and teach us in Jesus name. Amen. So chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read through the whole chapter, and then we're going to kind of take a look at a couple of things. So chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done in their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes. Because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, 
and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed to them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. I don't know how to say these right. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. This is the word of God. This is the very word of God. That is another thing to celebrate this morning. Oh man, I forgot to say that. That, that as we come to celebrate the Lord, guess what? We get to hear directly from Him through His Word. He speaks to us. That's an amazing truth that we can get excited about. As I look at this text, I keep thinking about and I thought about as we were uh, preparing this week is uh, simple things need to be made simple. Plain things need to be made plain. Um, we don't need to get caught up in all kinds of other things, but, but there's so much against us. There's so much against us in the world, uh, there's so much going on outside of us that we need to understand what does it mean to be a Christian man? What does it mean to be a Christian woman? What are we for? What are we for? That's, that's a good question to ask, and it's one I ask of myself, and I think that this text gives us some good answers as to what we are to be for. So the life of a Christian man, a Christian woman, a Christian child is one that can be described as radical. Here we are sitting in a room full of radical people. Radicals. You guys are rascals. Radicals. Opposed to everything out there, right? No. It's what you're for is the problem in the world, right? It's what you're for. But living a radical Christian life is not so much about what we are against. It is what we are for. A radical Christian life doesn't necessarily mean that you and I become obnoxiously loud, that we become boisterous against all the ills of the world, but that our sentiments, our desires, and our passions are radically different from what's going on around us. Our desires and our passions, the things that we are for, our sentiments, the things that hit us in the heart are radically different than what's going on outside of us. Not so much what that we're against all of those things. It's that we are for something radically different. Our hearts beat in a radically different direction. And not because you conjure up the thought and the idea and the sentiment yourself. It's that Christ has invaded your heart and your life. And he gives you a radical new passion. A radical new desire for other things. Amen. It's what we are for. The greatest threat, though, to that radical Christian living. We look at all the stuff going on around us and we think there are threats everywhere. And there really are. But I think that we see in this text that the greatest threat to radical Christian living is not outside of us. It's not outside of the church. But it's within us. It's within the church. This is why we'll see today what, that, that what we believe and what we define as non-negotiables must be clearly defined. We start out each day, each, each Sunday morning, by defining what we're for. Who we're for. Who is this Christ that we proclaim? We want to make sure that we, we know who it is that we are proclaiming. 
We want to know what it is that we stand underneath the authority of Scripture. What do we stand underneath? We're making claims. We're making confessions of faith. Confessions of who Christ is. Confessions of the authority of Scripture. We're making these confessions. And these are about defining what is non-negotiable. What are the things that are non-negotiable in this world? What are these things that we are for? Well, here's what we see in this text that the disciples were for. I see that, number one, they were disciple-making disciples, fulfilling the Great Commission. That's what they were for. That's their purpose and their aim. They preached Christ alone for salvation. Christ and nothing else. And all that they did and all that they were about was to bring glory to God alone. Number four, they established other radical communities. And they ensured that those communities had clear definitions as to what made them uniquely Christian by developing leaders in those communities. Number five, and all that they practiced was in the power of the Holy Spirit and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So I paused to think about what is the reason for sound doctrine? What is the reason for our shared confessions? What is the reason for our governing structure in the church? I pause to think about those things because I've made a very um, pointed, purposeful effort to communicate those things. And sometimes even, even making a pointed effort, I sit and I think, but why do I do it? What, what is the reason why I, I, I find that to be vitally important? It is. I think it's this. I think it's that the doctrine of the world system is askew and wrong. The world system has a doctrine that they live by. And it's askew and wrong and backwards. The confessions of faith that the world makes, and trust me, they do. They make confessions of faith. Not confessions in Christ, of course. But they make confessions of things that they take by faith. And that they want to communicate to us that we ought to take it by that same faith. That what they tell us is true. Well, you see, those confessions of faith that the world makes, they're vain and they're false. The governing structure of the world's governments are corrupt and self-serving. All of these truths about the world lead to vain and empty practices. Which is why we must define not only right doctrine... Right governing polity in the church, but right practice. And as if any of you were here for a time when I taught through Titus, and made me think of this, that right practice then flows from right doctrine. Right practice flows from right doctrine to a right heart transformed by the Holy Spirit. And then it manifests itself in right practice. The aim here for the leadership of the Carlton community is that we would be intentional in all that we do so that we reflect sound doctrine and sound governing. Not that we would serve ourselves with that governing, but that we would serve Christ. So that is the reason why I believe that we ought to be intentional right now more than ever. We ought to live with intentionality toward Christ because we said it's all about Him. If it's all about Him, then everything we do ought to reflect our intentions toward Him, our intentions toward the truth, our intentions 
toward understanding what it is that is sound doctrine. There are many, many doctrines out there in the world, and they are unsound, vain, and empty. Well, another thing to think about here is that we must keep our eye on the prize, right? Let's look at, at Acts 14, 21 and 22, because I want to key that what it is that we're, we're going to look at in the rest of this text falls from those two verses. In 14.21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The implication of this text is that our battle is within our soul. We must be strengthened in our faith to persevere. We must keep our eye on the prize. And that prize is our eternal kingdom with God. The promise is that we don't get there gently. There's not an easy believism. We don't get there gently. What is our only ability in the midst of trouble? I've talked with some brothers this week about our only ability. A real, a real only ability in the midst of trouble, in the midst of strife, uh, in the midst of tough personalities, is this. It's our responsibility. We have an ability to respond. We have an ability to respond to that. Well, this work has to be done transformationally. It has to be done in the power of God's regenerative, regenerative work in our lives. Jesus makes us a promise in John 16, He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, we see that this work, this battle is done internally. The peace we seek is not in the world, but it is in Christ, and it is Christ in you that brings you peace. It is Christ in you that brings you peace because we have an overcoming Savior. Matthew 7 Jesus tells us this. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Alistair Bates said this week, There is difficulty which attends the narrow way when we are prepared to hold to biblical principle. There's difficulty in the narrow way. It's not easy. It's a battle. It's a striving. It's a striving for what we have positionally already attained in Christ. But we need to live that out practically and respond to that. And there are all kinds of things that are coming against us. It is us that it comes against. Well, Paul puts it another way in Philippians 3, 13 and 14. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straying forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see here, Paul says, I strain forward. I lean into my upward call. I press on toward what I am for, not what I am against. See, what he was for was the realization, the, the consummation of his salvation in heaven. 
I strive forward to that which is going to be consummated. I press on as if I'm running a, a, a race in the Olympics. I lean forward so that I may win the prize. And then I realize that I have not attained anything. I have not in myself attained anything, but I press on because God is the one calling me home. I lean in toward what I'm for, not so much what's going on in the world and what I'm against, but it's what I'm for. Let's look at Acts 14, verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. You see, at Iconium, at Iconium these unbelieving Jews poisoning their minds. This would be the reason for sound doctrine, don't you think? As I was thinking about this, we were thinking about that which was outside of them. Okay? So, they have unbelieving Jews who are poisoning their minds against what they know to be sound. Poisoning their minds against Christ and Christ alone for salvation. It couldn't possibly be as simple as Christ paid it all, could it? Could it really be that easy? Could it really be that you don't have to work for your salvation? Could it that really be true? Oh no, that can't be true. I want to tell you this. You have Christ and something else. It's Jesus Christ and some sort of work that you might do. You need to add something to this gospel. And see, that's a poisoned mind. It's one who forgets what sound doctrine is. So you see that these unbelieving Jews, and the reason for our sound doctrine, you see, is that we would respond. Our responsibility would to be respond in this tribulation with a right mind toward Christ and a right mind toward our upward call. Knowing where we're going, knowing that Christ paid it all. Let's move down to verse 11 of chapter 14. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconium, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard that, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. Here in lies the big battle. Here in lies the big battle. You can look at it as this outward force going in to worship Paul and Barnabas. That it is a force that is against the gospel. There's a greater battle going on there. And that battle is pride. You see, we long to be recognized for the good that we do, don't we? We long to be given accolades for something that we've done. Or even something that God has done in us. God has done a work in your life and somebody says, Hey, you're such a good fellow, you know. I, I, I see what sweet things you do in the name of the Lord. And then, where's the tendency? Is to take all that credit upon yourself. Because you want to be recognized for doing good things. 
I know that even in uh, pastoral ministry, as I serve and all of those things, there can be a tendency sometimes, because you do it quietly sometimes, and you do it behind the scenes, and nobody knows some of the things that you do that you serve them. And then there's this little twinge of pride that creeps into my own heart that says, I did all this and nobody knew it. Nobody noticed. Nobody said, Jeff, you did a good job. Right? And I would think that Paul and Barnabas would have been really up against it in this moment. To have people bowing down at them, offering sacrifices, offering to worship at their feet. Their big struggle then would begin, but not externally. The big trouble began inside. Pride started working. You see, we long for these positions of authority. We long for positions of power. But Christ working in us, you know, that Christ working in us sometimes will bring favor with the world. And then that's when the battle begins. Do I accept vain glory? Or do I understand that God alone is who glory belongs to? You see, the battle is not outside of us, but it is within us. The greatest enemy of our soul, the greatest enemy of my soul, is my own deceitful human heart. That's the greatest enemy of my soul. But I think about this, that all is not lost. We can sit there and say, I am am a deceitful creature beyond all creatures. Because I know the depths of my heart. I know where my heart goes. And I know that in me is this deceitful human creature whose heart takes him in places he ought not to go, whose mind takes him in places that he ought not to go. And you can think that this battle is lost, that I'm just, I'm helpless and hopeless, and in yourself you are, but God gave us a battle plan. He gave us a battle plan. And and my friend, um, Mr. Doug, he spoke of this a few weeks ago, that he gave us this battle plan. He said in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He gave us a battle plan. He said this, Surrender yourself underneath the word of God. Surrender yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit to be transformed and conformed to likeness of Christ. And give up this idea of being conformed to what it is that the world says is to be exalted. What the world says is right. What the world says is good. You see, that's where the battle is. It's in us. Let's look at verse 23 of 14. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, Paul was not just about proclaiming the gospel to folks and then leaving them on their own. They were about establishing churches. And within those churches that they established, they were establishing leadership that would be steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. That these new churches would be intentional in what they are for. I say this morning that we should radically believe and declare our independence from the system of the world. We should radically declare our independence from the authority of the world and declare the authority of Scripture alone. We should radically declare our independence from any man or government to be our salvation. We radically declare our dependence on Christ alone for salvation. We radically declare our independence for a works-based righteousness. 
And we declare our dependence on a righteousness that comes by grace alone, in faith alone. We radically declare our independence from the societal norm of self-exaltation and vainglory. And we declare all that we are and all that we do is for the glory of God alone. Amen? Amen. I asked some questions of you that I asked of myself. Do you want to live radically in the world? Do you want to live radically in the world? Do you want to live radically for something that the world just doesn't quite get or understand? Do you want to live radically in that way? Well, we don't live radically against those things. We live radically for a person. We live our lives radically for the one who saved you. We live radically for him. Radically different. Because you know why? In a radical, radical act of love, God sent his son to be sin for you and for me, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Radically, amazingly, disgustingly, he was hung on a tree after being beaten and mocked to the point of death. After three days in the grave to ensure that death and sin had been defeated, here comes the most radical and universe-altering event ever known. The most radical thing ever known to man and, and ever again, I believe. This is the most radical thing that could ever have happened in the history of humankind. The one thing that no other faith can claim. There's no other faith on the world that can claim this radical love of God. Except for those of you who have put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus. You know this radical truth to be true. You know this. That our Savior, our champion... Our righteousness. God raised him from the dead. The most radical thing in human history. And because he raised him from the dead, guess what? We live in hope. We live in hope. And we strive forward. We press on for the prize. We press for this prize because one day you and I will dwell in the presence of the Most High God forever and ever. Amen? Amen. You can say amen to that. Right? <laughs> we can say amen to that. God wants to do a radical work in us. He wants us to live radically different. Radically different than the world. And I know a lot of you guys in here, and I know that you are living a radical life. A life that is radically changed. I know some of you have watched the progression of Christ invading your heart, invading your life, and the Holy Spirit doing a transforming work in you. I've watched God convince you that hearing from Him every day is vitally important to life. I've watched this happen. Watching this happen renews my faith in who Christ is. Watching this happen says, I know what God did for me personally. I know that. But when I see it in others, it convinces me when I have doubts. When I have doubts, I look at your lives and say, God so loved John Roberts that he convinced John Roberts that he needed a Holy Spirit invasion in his life, that he needed something outside of what the world tells him is the way he ought to live. 
And he's convinced, he's convinced that the Christ of the Bible is real, that the Christ of the Bible is the power of salvation, and it's in him alone. And that there is only but one authority that we live underneath, and that is the authority of the Word of God. He's convinced this, that the righteousness that he has in Christ Jesus, he didn't obtain it by his own work and his own power. The righteousness that he obtained was by grace, through faith. That he is also convinced that anything that he is and that he becomes from now and this day forward is not for his own glory, but is for the glory of the one who came and saved him. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word this morning. I thank you that we here this morning declare our independence from the system of the world. That we this morning declare our dependence on a holy and righteous God. We declare our dependence on the atoning work of Jesus Christ for our sin. We declare our dependence on the Holy Spirit for the power of conviction, correction, guidance, and understanding. We give you praise for what you've done in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.